0: So that column, that 40-mile column of military vehicles, pretty much stopped 24 hours ago. Nothing has happened. Now, of course, it could be that they're waiting to bring up more ammunition, more water, more fuel. But it also could be that there is a 27-kilometre gap to the south and southeast of Kiev, and that's the escape route. And last night, there was a message put out by the Russian defence ministry, and it said very simply... We urge Ukrainian citizens involved by Ukrainian nationalists in provocations against Russia, as well as Kiev residents living near to relay stations to leave their homes. Well, we know from UNHCR that 900,000 people so far have left the area, uh, and that it will be encircled very, very soon. I don't know exactly what magnitude the street fighting will take. I've no idea to what extent... Uh, Putin's army may be prepared to level much of that city. Some make comparisons with Stalingrad and say, well, actually, you know, if you've got a dedicated team, outnumbered though they are, they could hold on for a very, very long time. None of us accurately can predict that. What we do know, of course, is that Russian forces vastly outnumber those of the Ukrainians. The women and children are leaving. The men are being told to stay. Men are being told to stay and fight, and it would appear that many of them are prepared to do that. But in the, in the main, uh, these are not people who've received really any military training. Will they be able to hold their nerve? I just don't know. But let me ask you a question. What would you do if you lived in Kiev? Would you stay, or would you take this chance to go? Let me know what you think. Farage at GB News. And plenty of other dramatic developments in the last half an hour relating to Roman Abramovich. But first, uh, Darren McCaffrey, GB News' political editor, joins me. You were in the gallery of the House of Commons today. uh, One or two very interesting occurrences.
1: Yeah, indeed. Quite extraordinary. I've been to BMQs for years and years and years. Uh, I've lost count of how many I've been there. And I've seen runs of applause before Uh, We've seen MPs get quite emotional uh, before, but today was quite extraordinary in some regards. Here we go. We see the images of just everyone on their feet, but also looking upwards. And they were looking upwards at the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK who was in the gallery. And clearly for a lot of MPs, there is a lot of emotion wrapped up in this. But also there is a real sense of solidarity. And there's a hope that images like this Hmm. will actually go right around the world Now, MPs are not meant to be on their feet. They're not meant to be clapping in Parliament. It's very unparliamentary, though the Speaker did say he would let this one uh, go. Uh, But in the end, I think most of the MPs um, reacted to the moment, but they wanted to send that signal. They want people in Ukraine and elsewhere to see that image of parliamentarians essentially saying, Ukraine, we've got your back.
0: Mm. Well, I was in the European Parliament for almost 21 years, and every day... We applauded people in the gallery. So once you set the precedent, uh, the Speaker is going to have to clamp down pretty hard next time. But more seriously, Sakir Starmer's attack um, over sanctions. And I mean, let's remember, you know, Russian interest rates have gone from 10 to 20 percent, the rubles collapsed. I mean, and we're going to go to Moscow to get a report on the level of economic collapse. But Sakir
1: Starmer, Labour leader, asking for more. Yeah, I think it's always, in some ways, quite difficult because clearly there is unity, isn't there, across the House to a large degree in all of this. Uh, Though it must be said, and it's not just Labour, but the SNP and certain Conservative MPs feel that the government should be going further. Against individuals? And this is specifically against individuals um, at the moment. They fear that there are certain people who have been sanctioned by the US and the EU that Britain has yet to do so. And to be fair, Keir Starmer's probing and asking questions, why not? Now, the Prime Minister... Very deliberately, they swerved away from that, saying he's not going to get involved in naming individuals, the whole sorts of legal ramifications mm. and the sort. But let's have a look at that exchange. It was the one moment, I suppose, where there was a crack in the unity at PMQs today. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, Roman Abramovich is the owner of Chelsea Football Club and various other high-value assets in the United Kingdom. He's a person of interest to the Home Office because of his links to the Russian state and his public association with corrupt activity and practices. Last week, the Prime Minister said that Abramovich is facing sanctions. He later corrected the record to say that he isn't. Well, why on earth isn't he?
2: Uh, Mr Speaker, it's not appropriate for me to comment on individual uh, cases at this stage. Uh, but... Uh, and it is, but what I can say, uh, and, and, and I, I, I stand, Mr Speaker, by what I've uh, said in the House and, uh, and what we've put on the record. Uh, but uh, be no doubt that the actions that we've already taken, that this House has already taken, are having an effect in, uh, in Moscow. And by exposing the ownership of properties, of, of companies in the way that we are, uh, by sanctioning uh, 275 uh, individuals, already a further 100 uh, last week, uh, the, the impact is being felt. And what we will uh, publish in addition, uh, Mr Speaker, is a full list of all those associated uh, with the Putin uh, regime. Uh, Of course, we have already announced sanctions on Putin and
0: Lavrov uh, themselves. Well, since then, within the last hour, quite dramatically, a statement has been issued by Roman Abramovich, and he's made a decision to sell Chelsea Football Club. He says, I will not be asking for any loans to be repaid. That's 1.5 billion sterling. He also says, this has never been about business or money for me, but purely a passion for the game and the club. A club that he bought for £150 million, albeit 20 years ago. But he also says this, he is setting up a charitable foundation and the proceeds, the net proceeds from the sale will be completely donated to that charity, and that it will benefit all victims of the war in Ukraine. So it's a very, very big moment. It's a huge statement. Interestingly, he doesn't criticise Vladimir Putin in a way that Lord Levedev has in the last couple of days. Uh, but this is this is a very major piece of football news, rumoured to be a Swiss buyer uh, in the wings. He does say that it won't be an immediate fire sale, That it will follow due process, and my guess would be, and it's a guess. I better choose my words carefully here, I suppose. But I suspect that we find that after doing this, that Mr. Abramovich doesn't find himself sanctioned by the UK government.
1: Well, it's clear, isn't it, from that statement um, that something had to give to a degree. I mean, the opposition and other MPs have been raising this issue uh, for days. I think what was fascinating as well is the Prime Minister made clear that there are going to be more people added to that mm, list. Yeah. And that they will be named and chains. Yeah,
0: but it won't be. Public. But it won't be a
1: brother, Mitch, Well, we, we don't. <laughs> you, you, you we can, can speculate. Can, you can, you can <laughs> um, and, and also, the other interesting thing on sanctions is, and this is aside from the immediate ones, there's an economic crime bill that's been much planned, actually, um, regarding, essentially, money that's laundered through London. That is going to come before the Commons next week. Now, it is going to go through pretty quickly because everyone's quite keen to get it on the statute books. The problem is the implementation of that bill could take quite a long time. We're talking, Keir Starmer was suggesting today, up to 18 months. We're going to be in 18 months. The fear is that mm. many of these people will simply have the time to get the money out of London before anything can really properly...
0: Yes, happen. or even into crypto, where the crypto houses are not stopped any transactions. Indeed or sanctions of any kind at all. Quick thought, finally, Darren, on China's position in all of this. Really
1: fascinating. Uh, so we had a vote at the UN today, by the way, uh, condemning Russia's actions. 141 nations voted in favour of that. Uh, five abstained, probably unsurprised, by the there are places like North Korea, Syria, Belarus, mm. Eritrea, alongside Russia. Um, but there were many nations, dozens of them, who abstained, including India and China. China key in all of this. So today... Uh, we get suggestions that China might decide to be a broker of peace in all of this, that they mm. might get involved in possible peace talks. They went a little bit further today in describing, they've always described this as a deteriorating situation. Today, they called it a conflict. But in no doubts, the reason they've not come out and condemned Russia is because it's not really in China's self-interest to do so. They know that Russia's got a hell of a lot of commodities, which will be going pretty cheaply, given the fact that the West is now... They can't even sell Russian oil at the moment um, because lots of people won't buy it. So China's going to get access uh, to all of that. There is also an uh, an interesting thing in the geopolitics of where China views the world, and that is that this is Europe's backyard. It's not China's backyard. So European security is up to the EU. It's up to Russia and Britain. It's not up to the Chinese to get involved in this. they so not going to condemn that. And, and also, I think, ultimately, from a very selfish point of view, they feel that this is going to get NATO and the United States in particular Back involved in transatlantic relations. What does that mean? Less concern, interest, and time devoted to Asia Pacific issues, which of course suits China because China views that very much as its backyard. Not least of all, uh, one
0: China thing body. for certain is that Mr. Putin needs China, or will need no, China. No,
1: well, and, and, and the, but the real fear, of course, is yes. At the moment, this might be quite good for Russia, but in the end, no doubt, no. the dominant in power is China. <laughs> Russia could become China's laptop.
0: Yeah. I think China will have Russia for breakfast, ultimately. Darren, thank you. Now, let's go to the border, the Polish-Ukrainian border, to one of the crossing points, and joining me is Matthew Tiermond, a Polish-American investigative journalist, including Forgetter, and he's been down at that border today. Matthew, we're hearing from UNHCR 900,000 people have moved across these borders. Tell us what you've seen firsthand today, please.
3: Uh, Certainly. Yes, I was uh, I was in Medica, uh, which is the largest of eight border crossings that are in a straight north-south line uh, that, uh, that connect Poland and Ukraine. Medica is the largest one because uh, it connects Poland to one of the larger roads heading to Lviv, which is the largest city in western Ukraine and the fourth largest city in Ukraine. And as the lo- largest border crossing, it's obviously seen the most traffic. Uh, I was there uh, for several hours. I'll probably be back tomorrow. Uh, and I was seeing consistently <laughs> women and children, coming across without men, obviously very, very sad faces. I spoke to some. I got some footage. I'll continue to be uploading that in the next 12 hours, uh, video interviews and pictures. And they are sad. They're worried. They're scared. They're they're apprehensive. Uh, Some of them have a little bit of optimism, and they hope that they will be back in Ukraine. They're not looking to move into Poland full time or into Hungary. There's been uh, five countries that have predominantly taken this uh, just under a million women and children coming across. Poland's taken about half, uh, but you have Hungary, Slovakia, Moldova uh, also taking, ta- and Romania taking taking some of these uh, women and children coming across. Now, the one uh, really uh, interesting thing about the dynamic when we compare it against other border crises which Europe has seen in recent years, yeah. is that the Polish people have come out incredibly strongly. There's massive stores of food and clothing ready for the taking for anybody who needs, and Polish citizens are coming from all over the country and organizing transports to bring these women and children to convents, community centers, schools, uh, other facilities that can house them, and people are volunteering to take them in because they do not want there to be refugee camps. Uh, That is, uh, a ghettoization of refugees serves nobody's interest, and the Polish people are stepping up. The Polish government is managing this expertly, uh, very, very well organized. At no point is there hundreds of people running across, but they're all processed uh, on an individual basis. Uh, If you don't have your passport, it's fine. If you don't have a vax card, it's fine. The, this situation supersedes those bureaucratic situations, uh, and it is, it is being managed superlatively.
0: That's a quite extraordinary story. So the half a million have been dispersed right across Poland from the sound of it. That is that is remarkable. Um, I guess if the military situation deteriorates further, we'll start to see men crossing the border, too, at some point.
3: And, and you know what? It'll give you a very interesting supportive anecdote of that. I've been living on and off in Warsaw for the better part of 10 years, uh, when I'm not in the U.S. or traveling. And one of the things we saw after 2014 and the Donbass was that all of the Eastern Ukrainians that were pushed out of Luhans Donbass when the Little Green Men and the Russian separatists took control of these regions, they came to Poland as economic migrants, but well integrated, assimilated, and got jobs. And they became, many of them became Uber drivers. And overnight, the price of ride sharing and taxi cabs, went down markedly uh, and the availability, the supply went up. And now what I saw when I got back here to Warsaw in the last uh, few days is that Uber drivers take 10 minutes. The price is up three to four times because the young Ukrainian men, 20 years old to 35 or 40 years old, have gone back to Ukraine to fight. Yeah. And I think that is very, very inspirational. They really do believe, uh, and I believe justly, that they have a homeland to defend. So some of these uh, internet uh, stratagems you see from the, the troll farms of this is not a Ukrainian land. It's very, very fallacious. Tell that to the Ukrainians and tell that to some of the poles who I also saw went across. I saw a van uh, filled with uh, sort of young men, 25 to 35 or 40, who were going in and the window was open. I said, you're going into Russia, uh, into Ukraine right now uh, to fight. And they gave me a thumbs up. I think they're rather enthused, given the history of this region, to get involved and help defend Ukraine.
0: Well, i have to say, Matthew, after the last big migration into the European Union across the Mediterranean, what chaos that was and and continues to be, yours is actually a very heartwarming story. Thank you very much indeed for that report. In a moment, we'll go to Daily Mail journalist Owen Matthews. He is in Moscow. We're going to find out about the queues for ATM machines and try and find out just how much support does President Putin have? I asked you, the viewers, to put yourself in the place of those families in Kiev, which is about to be surrounded. Would you stay or would you go? One viewer says the way it's going, they should all leave and save their lives. Better to live and they will thrive in other countries. Far better to live at home than living at home under a murdering dictator. Well, that's an opinion, but some will stand and fight. I'm sure of that. It looks like Ukraine cannot win against this invasion. Soon, many people will die trying to fight a lost cause. Obviously no help coming from anywhere. So to save lives and property, surrender and give the rest of the world time to put things right after. Well, I'm not so sure I'm convinced that the world will put things right after if this becomes part of Russia. I'm really not. Stephen says, women and children should leave and all men, 18 and over, should stay. Which is, to a large extent, what is happening. Richard says, you should always have the common decency, to fight for your own country, but make sure your women and children are safe. Let's go to Moscow. I'm joined by The Spectator magazine's Russia correspondent, Owen Matthews. Owen, good evening to you. Great to be on, Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, I saw an article that that you wrote overnight um, from Moscow, and we've heard so little news from Moscow. So from the top, Vladimir Putin has, as I understand it, been a very popular president. Um, How is that popularity looking now? Has it shifted since the invasion began?
4: Well, Nigel, uh, can I just start by saying there's a couple of things I'd like to pick up on from uh, your last segment. Uh, Matthew, your report on the border, he said that no men or women or children were coming across. I said women and children, but no men were coming across. That's because uh, they're banned from doing so by Ukrainian law. Came out on the first day; I mean, they're not, literally not allowed to leave. Yeah. Um, and uh, but just uh, but concerning Putin's popularity, it's very um, clear that his uh, propaganda machine, which is very sophisticated, um, has gone into overdrive. The very few um, protests that were uh, broke out over, I would say, the first three days were very limited. I went to several of them in Moscow In St. Petersburg. There are a few more, but frankly, it's just a few hundred very brave people. Who risk uh, really terrible um, penalties um, from the police state that Putin has created, and it's a very sophisticated police state. Um, the first poll that came out showed that Putin's ratings have soared to over seventy percent. Wow, um, that's partly because uh, I think uh, people, you know, believe the television propaganda. I mean, very simply, and uh, they really have a um, have a almost uh, sort of cult-like faith in, in Putin and his wisdom. And that's uh, very hard to shake, especially if you have no other sources of information.
0: And in terms of information and where people get their information, you know, what is access to the internet like at the moment? How easy is it for an ordinary Russian citizen to go and find differing shades of opinion from all around the world? Well,
4: access to the Internet in, in Moscow certainly is far better than in, it is in London. It's extremely sophisticated city. <laughs> um, the, uh, what's very uh, striking is um, not so much that people don't have access. It's that they don't want to have access. They don't really want to know the truth. And it's actually a really important thing about the, the, the latest iteration of Russia's propaganda. Because in the run-up to 2014, the annexation of Crimea, we had like a two-month-long campaign of information war carpet bombing that was preparing all these tropes that we're hearing now, uh, the fascists in Kiev, the yep. uh, the... Yep. the, the and so on. And that was really uh, very, very full-on, very sophisticated propaganda. This time round, up to Sunday night, there was no indication, there was no propaganda um, build-up to this. They just suddenly turned on a dime. And the kind of propaganda that has been put out to supposedly demonstrate to Russian viewers this genocide is phoned in. It's just bad quality propaganda. So the question arises, do you have to be unbelievably gullible and stupid to believe it, or I think much more importantly, is to understand that people believe it not because they're stupid or gullible, it's because they want to believe it, and that's really a devastatingly important thing to to understand about Putin and the basis of his power is that yeah, he doesn't do no, very interesting. That's
0: uh, and what about people's lives? You know, ordinary Muscovites. I mean, you know, we see pictures of long queues for ATM machines. Um, what is life? I mean, has life changed yet? Have sanctions begun uh, to touch people's lives?
4: Uh, it's devastating for people with something to lose. To put it in a nutshell, the middle class, and also, by the way, the middle classes who are the most likely to be sceptical of Putin are the ones that, um, who have seen their Savings frozen, they're the ones that have been banned from transferring their money abroad and so on. Um, Those people who are in fact the brightest and best of Russia, the people who actually really very much Russia needs in order to continue on its path to a sort of normality and being a civilized European country, they've been hit terribly badly because they've been cut off from that European lifestyle to which they've become accustomed
0: and yep, but I guess they're a minority, so that explains the polls as you've explained them. And finally, Owen, how is it operating as a journalist from Moscow? Do you feel free to say everything that you want to, or do you have to look slightly over your right shoulder?
4: Um, well, um, as a foreign correspondent, uh, we, we enjoy a sort of rather... Special privilege, strangely, as this is a hangover from Soviet days, foreign correspondents were able to operate relatively freely, even under the worst days of the Cold War. Um, the one thing that's really striking to me is uh, actually the uh, the extent to which my colleagues, certainly in the in the in the press, and those uh, friends of mine who actually work in the Russian machine, have been surprised and shocked not only by the uh, reaction of their government. I mean, really, lots of people did not. Even those who work for Putin, even those who work for, for, in Putin's propaganda machine on the senior level, were completely taken aback by this. But they were also taken aback by the fact that they, they were effectively abandoned by—Russia has since been abandoned by far more people than they ever thought would ever abandon their side. And I'm speaking about people like Marine Le Pen, uh, about fun, yeah. uh, um, and actually you also, Nigel. Because well, hang on. Actually, uh,
2: whoa, whoa, whoa,
0: whoa! I mean, I was very critical uh, going back at uh, NATO expansion, but yes, I think what's happened here is completely beyond the pale. No, it's, I mean, yeah. you're right. You're right. What? But but he's got new friends now, hasn't he? China are his new big friend.
4: Um, well, I mean, just to continue before you interrupt me, I mean, I was in a Russian television studio because I went through a rather nerve-wracking uh, phase of going on to these very gladiatorial Russian talk shows, and I was there when they played with absolute delight, I mean, if I can quote you, uh, you say, uh, you your speech to the European Parliament, where you said that, uh, uh, that you called NATO expansion by the, and EU expansion provocative and encircling, and you said, I quote, we have got a lot wrong. We did start much of this. Well,
0: I said said that, Owen, I said that in 2014, and I meant it, and look where we are today. Uh, I'm not saying it's direct cause and effect, but I think we did make mistakes. Really interesting to hear that Putin has such a strong level of support in Moscow. That's something I don't think we've seen enough of in the British media, and I thank you for that report. Thank you. Owen Matthews there saying, wow, you know, the Russian people, certainly in Moscow, are behind what he's doing. Now, my what the Farage moment. Last night, it was the State of the Union speech. It's a big event in Washington. And of course, it was Joe Biden's first as president of the USA. And he spent the first 10 minutes or so of his speech not dealing with domestic issues, dealing with the big Ukrainian issue. And this is what he had to say.
5: Let's continue to draw inspiration from the iron will of the Ukrainian people. To our fellow Ukrainian Americans who forge the deep bond that connects our two nations, we stand with you. We stand with you. Putin may circle Kyiv with tanks, but he'll never gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. He'll never, he'll never extinguish <laughs> their love of freedom, and he will never, never weaken the resolve of the free world. Oh, dear. Well, saying
0: Iranian as opposed to Ukrainian wasn't perhaps Sleepy Joe's best, but then we very rarely get anything particularly good from him, in my opinion. Now, net zero. I know I've been talking a lot about net zero. There's been a report that's come out overnight from the Public Accounts Committee. And from what I can gather, it basically says that there is no idea within government of how much it will cost to pursue Net zero. Well, joining me is Marc Francois, Conservative Member of Parliament, who is part of that Public Accounts Committee, uh, which has delivered, um, I think it's fair to say, a pretty withering report on a policy that was put in place by Theresa May without consulting the public at all. Um, what say you, Marc Francois?
2: Well, Nigel, you are right. It is a, it's a scathing report. Remember, the PAC is an all-party committee. It has a Labour chairman in Meg Hillier. So, you know, it's across the House of Commons, in a sense. And if I were to summarise its conclusions in one sentence, it would be that the Majesty's government has absolutely no idea... how much the transition to net zero is going to cost the British taxpayer, and equally, neither does it know how much it's going to cost individual families. So that is a pretty punchy, hard-hitting report, and I think it will have an important effect on the whole net zero debate.
0: Yeah, I mean, Mrs Johnson is a very powerful figure. Uh, Lord Goldsmith, of course, been pushing this agenda very strongly. I've jokingly uh, called the government sort of the new Richmond Green Party. But the problem is, Mark Francois, they appear to be absolutely committed to this.
2: Well, Nigel, two things. I mean, firstly, I think the situation in the Ukraine in terms of our and Western Europe's energy security you know, has to change this equation. I mean, I accept the science that we do need to do something about climate change. I mean, I'm not a refusenik in that sense, but it's a global problem. So by definition, it needs a global solution. The United Kingdom is responsible overall for about 1% of all global emissions. China is responsible for more than 25%. So even if you were to close down the entire British economy, we all went back to living in caves, given that the Chinese are opening two new coal-fired power stations a month, that wouldn't even begin to scratch the difference that the Chinese are making. So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything, but it does mean to me that we should keep this challenge in proportion and not do things that damage our own economy, while other countries that emit 25 times more than we do appear to do little or nothing.
0: No, and there's one further argument, Mark, that I believe very strongly in, and it's this. You know, the more wind turbines you build, the more gas you need to back it up when the wind doesn't blow. We still need coal because we're still manufacturing steel. Maybe not on the scale uh, I would like, but we are. Uh, you know, we still need oil. Uh, we still need these things. And it appears we're happy to import all of these goods without producing them ourselves, which we could. We seem happy um, to outsource and offshore heavy manufacturing. And we say, isn't it wonderful? We've reduced our carbon dioxide emissions, but net across the world, these activities probably put them up. The most contentious issue of all of this is that large gas field up in Lancashire. And I heard Business Secretary Kwasi Kwateng the other day saying, absolutely no way we are going to develop that gas field. Do you think, as a result of Ukraine, which, and you quite rightly say, should make us rethink completely our energy strategy and push, in my opinion, towards us being self-sufficient, do you think that debate can come back onto the table?
2: I think it has to, Nigel. I mean, I, I would, as you know, I've, focused a lot on defense down the years. We, we've discussed yeah. this before. I think that what happened last week in the Ukraine is a game changer. It's something on a scale comparable with 9-11. And I think the government's integrated review of defense and foreign policy has effectively been completely overtaken by events. And one of the things we need to reassess, as well as defense spending, is our energy security and that of Europe. So, providing we could do it safely, I do think, to be fair to the residents of Lancashire, we would need to make sure that this could be done safely. But providing we could do it safely, I think that we need to look at the possibility of fracking again. I agree with you.
0: Yeah, I think it's a debate that is going to come. Mark, thank you for giving us some testimony on that. Really, very shocking parliamentary committee report. A few more of your opinions. Sylvia says, if I were a young, able-bodied male, yes, I would stay and fight, but as a mother with three children, I would take them to safety. Peter says, I would like to think that I would stay and defend my home. Some look for a purpose in life, and for others, that purpose finds them through circumstance. And John says, both my wife and I in our 60s would fight we would pick up a gun and fight against this tyrant. And Ron says, I love my country, and even at 73, I would do everything I could to defend it. And finally, Camilla says, the courageous should stay, and the not-so-courageous leaving wouldn't make any difference. Well, you can imagine, right now, there are a lot of people in Ukraine having to make very, very difficult decisions. In a moment, I'll be joined on Talking Pines by the world's oldest active war correspondent, Al Bentler. My next guest has been a war correspondent since 1965. He's written over 50 books. And let's see a clip of him reporting on the Angolan Civil War during the 1980s. When the
5: engineers weren't certain of the security of a particular position, they employed their own means to find out where the danger still lurked. This Swapu camp was hit by the Parabats last night. The Parabats are the South African version of American Airborne. They came in at dusk and they withdrew half an hour later. The base itself extends over an area of about 20 football fields. It's huge, it's camouflaged. It typifies the sort of war that is being fought. It's not a sophisticated installation, but it's functional for the purpose of the kind of terrorism which is being waged into Southwest Africa.
0: Well, he's still war reporting, and he's joining me here on Talking Pines. Out. welcome to the programme. Thank you, man. Very okay. good to see you. Now, what drives someone to want to become a war correspondent? What is it?
5: Well, it's better than working. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: yes, I suppose it is. Um, but it's kind of a little bit dangerous, isn't it?
5: You know, it's, it's it's in the mind. Yes, I've been blown up a few times, quite a few times. I'm deaf in this year. You've been shot? Uh, shot at. Uh, as a matter of fact, yeah, you know, it's something that you live with. In Sierra Leone, I had a friend called Hawkeye, who's quite famous in television in America, and we used to compete with each other as to who could, be, who could draw more fire. I mean, it's quite stupid. But the, the number of narrow escapes is just unreal. Uh, you need you need a bit of luck and I've had a hell of a lot of it. I've been blown up very seriously twice once I was standing in the turret of a tank uh, and we detonated a Soviet anti-tank mine and I went flying if I if that had to happened today I'd be dead but then I was much lighter and I was only broke my arm um, the other time I was under we were under mortar attack and I and and I thought that the mortars were walking we call it Walking towards us, they mm-hmm. fired them in salvers and I was—I I opted out of the trench, and I ended up ahead of my own people, and uh, I got blown up. You've done much
0: of this embedded, you know, embedded with regiments, embedded with private, more mercy.
5: Today it's embedded, in those days it was casual. Right. So I would go to South Lebanon, and I'd go and see my old pal who ran the UN, and I'd say, how's it going? Uh, and uh, he'd say, okay, well, you're sleeping there. Where do you want to go? And uh, now I went back two years ago to South Lebanon, and it was a whole palaver to even to get into the place. Uh, it was a bad mistake. Uh, there, under those circumstances, with Hezbollah around, uh, mm. you can get yourself killed.
0: Yeah, or taken hostage.
5: Well, you know, uh, we, uh, Very briefly, going down from Beirut to Nukura, which is the headquarters, the the UN base, I had my own taxi. I hired a man. And we were stopped halfway down. And a guy got in, and uh, he had asked for a lift. And I said, "Okay," to the driver. And he got in, and he he turned around to me and said, "Uh, where are you going, Mr. Venter? Hmm. And I said, "Uh, you know where I'm going, if you know my name. He said, yes. I said, uh, He said, have you got the authority? I said, well, how the hell do you think I'm here? You know, I couldn't get through the roadblocks without them. I said, by the way, uh, your your English is pretty good. Where are you from? And he said, Kilburn. And if he's watching tonight, well, then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like that. But you've done done, uh, all sorts of stuff with armies on the ground. You've also been in combat missions in the air as well. So you've seen war from all different perspectives and, and everything from the Congo. I mean, you've been involved in so many of these conflicts, reported on these conflicts. Do you find it... Does it depress you that human nature is the way that it is?
5: I don't have the time to think like that, and I'm not being blasé. I work very hard. I'm I'm working on four books. I shouldn't be mentioning this because my publishers will probably watch (laughs) different publishers. And I I do... I work... uh, I'm pretty at it, so I don't allow things to get to me. But I must confess, Ukraine has got to me because we're on the fringe of uh, a situation that is dominated by the two biggest leaders, major leaders in the world. And the one seems to be out of his mind with illusions of grandeur. You mean Putin has lost the rational function, in your opinion? Well, look what he's done. I mean, he's now threatening something. He's doing something that has never done in the Cold War. Neither side ever said, "I am going to nuke you." He said it, and on the other side, we have a man that can't even give a proper State of the Union address in Washington. Who confu- he made ten major blunders, the sort of blunders that yeah, added- I, I just played one a moment ago.
0: But yeah. Yes, I mean the man is
5: yeah. I, I, Biden, bless his soul, but he shouldn't be there. Hmm. Uh, I'm older than him, uh, and and and. You know I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm ashamed and I lived in America so I have a personal interest in the situation.
0: So we have Biden uh, leading NATO but not really leading NATO.
5: I think uh, Europe's taken over NATO for itself in a very effective way in this in this case. In terms of sanctions,
0: yes, it has um, not in terms of military action but they but I mean it was interesting wasn't it that even Sweden who stayed neutral in the 3945 war, Even Sweden have given some weapons. So when you go, I mean, just we're on Ukraine. When do you go and get involved in these conflicts? Do you, in your own mind, say to yourself, "I'm on this side
5: or that side"? Normally, yes, you have to because you're going to. I don't go with with the bad guys. When we, when I say bad guys, uh, when I was in with the Israeli forces, I went in with Arik Sharon into uh, we took Beirut. um, I, I identified with them okay. because there were 99 rebel Islamic groups that were uh, abducting people that held them hostage for five years and things like that, so I could identify very easily. Uh, on this lot, um, Ukraine, the man has, of his own volition, done something that hasn't been done in Europe now for, since, since almost since I was born, and that's a hell of a long time ago. Uh, he is. What you mean? The invasion of a yes. sovereign country. You know, this is now really, and and he's, it's not the first time he did it. He did, he did it with Crimea, and uh, he'll do it again if you don't stop him. This is Hitler all over again. Now, Crimea, of course, was Russian-speaking, and so was, by the way, Ukraine, and and, and it was Russian. It was handed over by freedom by Khrushchev.
0: Yeah, yeah, but they, but 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 culturally. The west of Ukraine clearly does not want to be with Russia, and of that there is no doubt. I mean, he hasn't actually said, I'll nuke you, but he's, he's raised the stakes a bit, hasn't he, on the nuclear debate. So what happens now? I mean, give us your opinion. You, you know, we see a column of... A 40-mile column, allegedly, of military vehicles that got to the outskirts of Kiev, or Kviv, however it's pronounced now. Yeah. Um, that has sort of just not moved. I've been wondering... I've been wondering why, and obviously NATO aren't involved, but I've been wondering why there have not been airstrikes on that
5: column. This is the number one question. For God's sakes, they stuck on one lane behind each other for 15 miles. This is is the beauty of being able to retaliate, and they haven't. And on top of which, the Ukrainians seem to command the air. A very peculiar situation. So They, they... Their planes had not been as active as one would have thought. They've got 10 times as many fighter jets as Ukraine. We would have expected them to be over there all the time. Yes. They are over, but not to the extent that you would. But that is mainly caused by uh, the fact that the Ukrainians now have got enough Stinger missiles to start another war of their own. Now, I'll tell you a very interesting thing here. the, The war in Mozambique has had some Ukrainian pilots... And uh, when this fight went on about a year ago, the Ukrainian mercenaries were flying helicopters and gunships. Yep. And every time there was the ground fire, the jihadists who were no great guns, but they were damn good with their, with their weapons, they, they showed any resistance, the Ukrainians turned around and went back to base. They said it was too dangerous. And this this underscores another angle. Um, the The Russians as a fighting man, we know that in World War II, they were the bravest of the brave. This was an, a most an astonishing nation. And like the Americans, like the British, we wouldn't have survived had they not been as good as they were. But the Russian Wagner group, that is a, 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 a mercenary group, yeah. which is linked, is called Putin's private army, but this the elite. They went into Mozambique, uh, were called in to, to sort these rebels out in, in 2019. They lasted, they landed with helicopters, with uh, infantry fighting vehicles and drones and you name it, they had everything. They lasted four months. Mm. And then they packed all their bags and they went home.
0: So it's a different caliber of Russian soldier.
5: Today, and, and, the, and the same happened, by the way, in Tripoli in Libya. They also had to give way there. So we have got today a situation where the Russian of today is not really... The Russians of the old days, so, but but can
0: the Ukrainians? I mean, as I say, I've, I've, I've been surprised they haven't used their planes. I, I know they've lost a couple, but can the Ukrainians hold them? Is it possible?
5: No, ninety nine percent. But the, up to this point, no, ninety nine percent. No, in the long term. Hmm. But he can't afford fifteen billion billion dollars a day, Putin, which is the, what the war is costing. And I'm quoting I'm quoting uh, American sources on that one. Yeah. He has to finish this war in ten days. He hasn't got the reserves because he suddenly his six hundred billion reserves, half of them are overseas and they've been seized.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a fair point. That that, that that's where the sanctions really do start to hit. Yeah. But now you've been war reporting since 1965, um, but you're not retired, are you? I un- I understand. It's rumoured you're thinking about going to Ukraine
5: yourself. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going on. You're going. Yeah. Why not? <laughs>
0: Uh, do you want to share with the audience your age?
5: Well, I'm, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to put my neck out. It's a, it's a, it's a dodgy war. Today, yeah. you're not dealing with, just with the soldiers. You're dealing with um, a, a new factor, sniping. Sniping uh, today is at, at a peak. Both sides have got incredible snipers. Mm. And the Chechnyans are, are v- exceptional. So go to uh, go, I go to Ukraine it's a hell of a risk of moving around. Hmm. And you can't stay underground all the time. Wow. Well, so I... this is this is the fact that I, I weigh my odds up very carefully. I, I'm alive. I I am told that I'm now the um, the oldest war correspondent in the world.
0: I think that's very believable. 83. <laughs> that's very believable <laughs> as a story. And when you're not off going to danger zones and reporting, deep sea diving is the abiding love and hobby, I'm told.
5: That's my love. That's number one. That's number two, love, because my music is my, I'm a classic fan and I missed it badly with, um, with, with this uh, plague that we de- dealt with. Yep. When I go down to uh, the Indian Ocean, India, I, I dive, I like to dive with sharks. And we do- Of course. Of course, I mean, yeah, of no, course no, no, you do. No, but it, people, <laughs> people have this impression that, that they, you don't dive with great whites, but you can dive with ordinary sharks as long as the water is clear and you can see what is around yeah. you. And if I'm diving with you, I look over your shoulder, and you look over my shoulder, and if that's the way it goes. And I've, I've, I've never been bitten. I've been, I've had a few, had to make a few runs for it. But uh, sharks are the most incredible creatures on God's earth.
0: Well, I think you're a pretty incredible creature, Al. And thank you very much for joining me on Talking Pines. All the best. <laughs> Well, that was different, wasn't it? Um, Okay, it's time for Barrage the Farage. I never know what subjects I'm going to get, but here goes. Fraser asks me, should MPs donate their salary increase to helping Ukrainian refugees? Yeah, I don't think the timing of MPs' pay going up by over two grand, uh, given that that will happen on the day when taxation for the rest of the country is going to go up, when people's electricity bills, gas bills and everything else is going, let alone filling up the car, is going through the roof. Uh, I don't think it's that bright of MPs to take a pay rise. Right now, should they donate it? Well, they won't. So that ends that conversation. Alan asks... Ah, here we go. If Putin presses the nuclear button, how many countries in the world will escape the consequence of a nuclear war? Al, you said to me in our conversation we should stop Putin... What's our red line? When should we try and stop him?
5: If we stop him, we're all going to die. If he attacks first, we're all going to die. The, the, uh, inf- the uh, radioactive contamination would be worldwide because we're not dealing with uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki, one bomb and they were atom bombs. These would be thermonuclear bombs, which are 20 times the power and the contamination, the radioactivity... So how do we stop him? It would kill us all. So how do we stop him? Well, I could make a lot of money if I knew the answer to that
0: one. Oh, it's a very honest answer, too, and thank you. And It just shows you how serious this situation is. Mick asks me, more. there's more for you. It's more, more for you than me tonight. The Russian army have many relatives living in Ukraine. Do you think there's a chance that they'll refuse to kill any more citizens of Ukraine for Putin and turn on him? morale in the Russian army. We did see a sort of
5: small neighborhood. It's, 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 it's bad. And people didn't know that they were going to invade. And even his own generals didn't. His top command was surprised by some of the comments that he made it, at that press conference that showed on yeah. their faces. And I, I stick my neck out, but the Russians are a clever nation. They're not going to take much more of this rubbish. Interesting. They could turn on him. Interesting.
0: And maybe the generals, maybe one or two of the generals, although they always look terrified of him. Let's keep going. Chris asks, salted or dry-roasted peanuts? Oh, salted peanuts, uh, actually, they go rather well with one of these, I think, really. Um, Michael asks me, with her newfound role in politics, do you think we should send in Meghan Markle (laughs) to perhaps negotiate a truce? Meghan Markle's problem isn't truces, it's truths, and she struggles with those, it seems to me, quite considerably. No, that simply isn't going to happen. A final thought, Al... Um, maybe Putin doesn't take on NATO. Maybe he stops with Ukraine or Moldova. That would that would at least that's say the end of his career. What stopping would be the end of his career? You think?
5: Yeah, they would kick him out. Uh, he's he's got to start. He's got to finish what he started. He, he knows it because uh, the, the the economy is in tatters, and I mean tatters There's never yeah. been an economy that's collapsed so yeah. completely in such a short time in the history. No, never. Never. No. So he's got to move fast.
0: You reckon he's got to get this finished in the next 10 days so things could turn very ugly in Ukraine.
5: Well, I could be proved wrong, but who knows?
0: Yeah. No, who knows? Well, I don't know either, but we've had a great guest tonight, a very interesting programme, reports from the border, um, and we'll go on covering this story and providing as much analysis as we possibly can. There's no doubt about one thing. The world is in a very, very serious place. Who would have even dreamt it? just a couple of weeks ago. It all goes to show, as Mark Francois said earlier, a big rethink on defence, energy, all of those things will happen.